0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a new bonus episode on Sasha Baron Cohen's latest political provocation, Borat Subsequent Movie Film. And we have one coming soon about this wild season of the FX series, Fargo. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash Show. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of
1: the past enter and take possession of a living being
2: we may be through with
1: the past but the
2: past is not through with us
0: welcome to the next picture show a movie of the week podcast dedicated to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release i'm keith phipps here with tasha robinson and genevieve kosky Our regular co-host, Scott Tobias, is not with us, but we've sent out our best reporter to interview several key figures in his life to try to piece together its meaning. With American Movie Theatres largely closed, we're still focusing on quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're breaking with formula to deliver the most innovative podcast you've ever heard, one informed by the genius and enthusiasm of me, creating a podcast episode so groundbreaking and moving. That all other podcasts will struggle to match its quality for decades to come.
2: Uh, Keith? Yes? You know this is a group effort, right? Uh, what's that you say? A group effort, meaning, yes, you're hosting this episode, and your voice is going to be all over it, but it's a collaborative work in a collaborative medium, I mean, you might.
0: Feel and I can that- picture it now. Next picture show theater presents a Keith Fitz production, episode two fifty four. Uh, Ke- Keith, I don't think that two fifty four in which
3: I and my co-hosts talk about. Um, uh, Keith, are you reading
2: from a script?
0: No. Yes. Keith, did
2: Scott write that script? Have you have you sidelined him off the podcast so you could take all the credit?
0: Uh, first answer, technically yes, though I refined and reshaped the original script to suit my vision of what the episode should be. Second answer, no. Anyway, I'm going to reflect on some choices for a bit. Uh, Tasha, can you tell our listeners about this week's pairing? In
2: 1941, Orson Welles made his directorial debut with a film that would define him, Citizen Kane. A rise and fall story not so loosely based on the life of newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, it was hailed as a masterpiece thanks to its storytelling ambitions and stylistic innovations, even as Hearst attempted to suppress it. It also cemented Wells' reputation as a genius, thanks to his role as director, producer, and star. He did share one significant credit, however. Kane's screenplay was credited to both Wells and Herman J. Mankiewicz, a veteran screenwriter who, like Wells, had left New York to seek his fortune in the movie business. David Fincher's new film, Mank, depicts Mankiewicz's work on the Kane screenplay, while, like Citizen Kane, the film flashes back to significant moments in his life and career and draws connections between the two.
0: And so for the next two weeks, we'll be looking at two films even more closely connected than our usual pairings. We'll start with Citizen Kane this week, then follow it with Mank. Please join us. Charles Foster
2: Kane is... Sure, he started the war. But do you think if it hadn't been for Mr. Kane, the United States would have the Panama Canal?
3: Charles Foster Kane is nothing more or less than a communist! Kane, hey, governor.
1: Listen, when the voters of this state and Mrs. Kane learn what I found out about Mr. Kane and a certain little blondie named Susan Alexander, he couldn't be elected dog catcher. I'm going to skin Mr. Charles Foster Kane alive.
0: I'm going to marry him next week. At the White House. Emily, I hear you've been stepping out with Charlie Kane. Of course I love him. I gave him $60 million. Well, of course I love him. He's the richest
2: man in America.
1: But all the girls say about him at first. But you know,
0: I can't help but admire him. He's crazy. He's wonderful. In August of 1939, Orson Welles signed a contract to make two films. And not just any contract. George Schaefer, president of RKO Radio Pictures, made him an unusual offer that would give him complete control over the films, for which he'd serve as producer, director, star, and writer. This would be an extraordinary offer for any filmmaker, to say nothing of a filmmaker who'd never made a film before. But Wells was no ordinary novice. Even at 24, he had considerable experience under his belt thanks to his work in the New York theater and on the radio airwaves. It wasn't low-profile work either. He staged Macbeth with an all-black cast and drawn connections between Shakespeare's age and the politics of the 1930s with a modern-dressed version of Julius Caesar. And, on the radio, he terrified listeners with a dramatization of Were the Worlds that some mistook for an actual alien invasion. Wells was widely regarded as a wunderkind, with a gift for self-promotion that felt more like one of his many talents rather than an empty hype. Wells' days of grace didn't last that long. By July of 1942, he'd seen his second film, The Magnificent Ambersons, taken out of his hands, and another film, It's All True, cancelled while still in progress. His first film had presented difficulties as well. Heavily inspired by the life of William Randolph Hearst, it attracted the newspaper publisher's ire, leading to an attempt to suppress the film. Hearst failed, but Kane still experienced distribution problems. That led to underwhelming box office returns, the sort that could make a studio wonder if they had made a bad investment by backing a wunderkind. The film itself however well that was a different story it was met immediately with praise here's a typical review from Marion Boone in the St. Louis Star and Times published upon its 1941 release there's no question about it Citizen Kane is in a class by itself so novel in technique so compelling in style that it represents a revolutionary advance in cinematic art and it proves beyond the slightest doubt that the 26-year-old pride of Kenosha Wisconsin is a theatrical genius Boone wasn't kidding Kane's innovations are manifold, from the fractured chronology and the multiple perspectives used to tell the story of Charles Foster Kane, to the deep-focused photography and deeply considered editing choices that make the camera and the cutting room feel like active participants in the way the story is told. Kane looked like no other film. It's a collection of bold choices, confidently drawn together by a creator eager to try out every trick he could. None of which would have mattered if those choices didn't serve a story worth telling. Citizen Kane began as a Herman McEvitt screenplay, more on him in a bit, simply called American. And though it drew on Hearst's life, it mostly seemed interested in Hearst as a way to talk about larger themes. Themes of corrupted ideals and lost innocence, and the ways we sometimes set out to fight against everything we hate, and then end up becoming it. It tells Kane's life in fragments, but nonetheless captures its scope. Here's more from Boone's Kane review. To Wells must go the bulk of the credit for whatever is represented in Citizen Kane. It's literally a one-man job. He co-authors this original screenplay, produced and directed the picture, and assigned himself to the title role. He even sketched some of the settings as a guide for the artists, cameramen, and others of the technical crew who were under his close personal direction. That is literally not what anyone would call a one-man job, and the subject of what credit should be owed to Mankovitz, cinematographer Greg Toland, editor Robert Wise, and a talented cast that includes Joseph Cotton and Agnes Moorhead, has become a matter of contention since Pauline Cale published the famous essay Raising Cain in 1971. Wells did little to discourage talk of his genius, but there are consequences that come with that kind of talk. Still, no one has ever suggested Citizen Kane could have existed without Wells either, and its rise and fall story takes on a certain poignancy in light of Wells' lifelong struggle to achieve the sort of creative independence handed to him at the beginning of his filmmaking career. But at least he got to make that one on his own terms. Then watch as it became, for years, the consensus choice as the greatest movie ever made, and served as a dividing line between pre-Kane and post-Kane filmmaking. All because the 24-year-old decided it might be fun to try to make a movie. If I don't look after the interests of the underprivileged, maybe somebody else will. Maybe somebody without any money or property. Yes, yes, yes. Money and property.
1: Well, I happened to see your financial statement today, Charles. Oh, did you? Now, tell me honestly, my boy. Don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise? This empire that's costing you a million dollars a year?
3: You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year.
1: You know, Mister Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in sixty years.
0: All right, everyone, let's talk about Citizen Kane. Uh, this this obscure this obscure <laughs> gem from uh, from a forgotten corner of the filmmaking universe. Uh, what is everyone's history with Citizen Kane?
2: I mean, I first watched uh, Kane in college when when you're required, if you're remotely interested <laughs> in film, to watch Citizen Kane. And I resisted it at the time as kind of a, uh, you know, here's your, your cultural vegetables. Here's some, uh, tired old story that, uh, about a, uh, self-important rich white man who's having self-important rich white man troubles. And then I watched it and I was like, this is amazing. It's, it's so engaging. It's surprisingly funny. It's surprisingly tragic. The makeup effects are some of the best I've ever seen. And it's remarkable, you know, given the decades of trashy old man makeup that followed it. Re-watching it every time I go too long without watching Citizen Kane, for some reason that attitude creeps back in. Just a sort of feeling of oh yeah yeah it's a classic whatever it's a you know kind of kind of stiff and staid and self-important and Orson Wellesy though right and then every time I rewatch it I find myself astonished all over again I mean this this film is just remarkable in so many ways like so many of the the shots are so startling so many of the performances are so amazing and above all the use of space is just both spectacular and. Really, really surprising. I feel like this film on some level just exists to, to surprise you just by being itself every single time you watch it.
3: Yeah, I got to h- kind of have that experience of surprise watching it this time with some people who hadn't seen it before, which uh, I'll get to uh, in in a minute. But as for my own experience, I also watched this actually in, in grad school, not college. I guess I was a late bloomer when it, when it came to Citizen Kane. <laughs> but I think I've talked before on this podcast about the project I took on in grad school of watching all of the films on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies list in. Ascending Order, and Citizen Kane, if you don't know, is at the top of that list. So this was something that took me about a year to do, uh, to go through all 100 of these films. I skipped a couple because they weren't available on Netflix DVD rental, which is how I was experiencing them at that point. So I came to Citizen Kane at the end of this like year long viewing project and just to kind of give you a sense of like the mindset i was in i had just gone through the four films preceding it on that list which were our, at that point the list has changed since then but at that point was uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Gone with the Wind, The Godfather and Casablanca those are the the four leading up to it so Citizen Kane came after that so i think like by that point i was definitely kind of in a little bit of a homework mentality uh, that Tasha mentioned, you know, and obviously I knew a lot about Citizen Kane. I thought I had an idea of what I was in for. And I do remember being pleasantly surprised at how it, much it didn't I guess didn't feel like homework even though it kind of did, but it is a, a much more of a crowd pleaser, I think, than you may be led to believe based on its its reputation. And then, you know, 15 years went by and I didn't really, like Tasha, I kind of like forgot what it was like to experience Citizen Kane. And then this time around, I watched it with two people who had never seen it before and kind of had that same experience of like, wow, this is a much more like accessible, visually stimulating and occasionally funny film than I think its reputation may lead you to believe if you kind of think of it in terms of the best film ever made and this film that you have to know about and have to know everything about. If you're someone who really appreciates film, it just like creates this sort of wall around it that actually the experience of watching the film, I think, breaks down that wall. But you have to be motivated to do that. And I think especially I think in you know, maybe the last 20 years or so, I think there's been more resistance among people to kind of make that effort, because it's like, what does Citizen Kane have to offer me in the 21st century? You know, like, I know what this movie is about, even though I haven't seen it. And I think that is, for most people, not going to be the case. But I definitely also understand where that mentality comes from.
0: Yeah, I think that's really well put. I, I think is anything takes on the best ever, it comes becomes a little forbidding, and, and also kind of right, you know invites a challenge. And we've seen the most recent Sight and Sound poll, which is, tends to be the consensus source for greatest movie ever made. It's Kingsman's the Planet* by *Vertigo*, which in some ways to me just kind of makes sense as the passing of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think you know a more a more recent film. Obviously, Vertigo is many, many years ago still, but more recent than Kane uh, is gonna inevitably going to creep up as the influence is felt. But I think you're right. I, I It is – take away all that. It's just a super entertaining, incredibly propulsively made film. You know, it just moves right along. It's paced kind of like an action blockbuster at times, too. You know, we have sort of these discrete sections that have their own kind of style and rhythm to them that give way to the next one. But my own history is – I've probably talked before about how important that uh, Leonard Maltin's uh, TV movie guide was. to me where I kind of go through and try to watch all the three and a half and four star movies as they appeared on television which means I attempted to watch a lot of widescreen movies and pan and scan horribly <laughs> edit it. Uh, the first time I saw I tried to watch Robert Altman's Nashville I thought this is an incomprehensible mess who could watch this And I realized it just been you know when I finally saw it I realized it just been cut to ribbons but uh, this was a big one for me it was one of the you know because its reputation was so big and because I wanted to see the best stuff I read it pretty early on I think it was seventh or eighth grade when I was really starting to dig in into movies and I, I think just to do it a Side here, I know there's a lot of. I get the understanding that we need to get beyond canon. I totally get that, but I also think canons are great starting points. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like you did with your AFI list, you know, you start with those 100 lists, you know, 100 movies, but you don't stop with those 100 movies. They give you other places to look. But you yeah, know, I was drawn to this because of its reputation, and it, it certainly. I feel like my I I loved it at the time. I feel like my appreciation has certainly grown over the years, I feel like it's one of those movies where you do notice something different every single time you watch it i mean it is um you know there's there's so much going on. Uh, I think my most memorable screening of it though is is um first time I saw it on the big screen was back in the, er, er, my early days of the a v club when we still didn't know better about going to press junkets and I was at this press and with a couple. Horrible experience, generally speaking. But I was at one in L.A., and it was for a, uh, a not very good movie that I'll just refrain from naming. But it was the late <laughs> '90s, and the, the only way I felt I could wash the sort of the experience out of my mouth was Citizen Kane was playing within walking distance. So I actually took a couple of other journalists that had never seen it before <laughs> with, with me, and they all looked it. So I felt like I was doing my my good deed by spreading the gospel of Kane. But uh, anyway, I was really happy to revisit it. I think it'd probably been like eh, probably ten years since I've seen this from beginning to end. So it was a a pleasure to watch it again.
3: Yeah. It's interesting to hear you talk about like seeing it multiple times because this was only my second time Mm. seeing it. Tasha, have you seen it more than twice?
2: Uh, I think this was, I honestly can't remember if it was my third or my fourth.
3: Okay. Because- And this kind of goes back to the idea that we have said is not accurate, but I think still persists the idea of it being homework is it's like it's never a movie I've ever thought to rewatch because it feels like, well, that's one I've checked off. And maybe it's because I came to it in this like list mentality of, you know, Mm -hmm. like this this is one that I have to see in order to be a well-rounded culture film person. And I've seen it and now I don't need to see it again. And I don't really have a defense for where that comes from. So it, I, was, I was glad to have this opportunity to rewatch it and be able to experience it in a new way with all the film knowledge I've acquired in, in the last 15, 20 years. Um, how, how long has it been? How does time work? Yeah, 15, 15 years. <laughs> but it also makes me kind of bummed that I never really made the effort to revisit it before now. I never made the effort to seek it out on the big screen because in my mind, it's like I said. A, a, box that I checked. And it's not a movie that I hold in my head as something to watch for pleasure. And maybe that has changed now after this viewing. But I also wonder if that's something that other people maybe experienced.
2: Well, I mean, it's hardly a comfort movie, you Mm -hmm. know, it's not exactly full of warm, good feelings that you want to revisit in order to spark warm, good feelings in yourself. I mean, among other things, all three of us have jobs that expressly require us to mm-hmm. be constantly watching new media and constantly trying to catch up on new media, while also constantly trying to fill in those Citizen Kane style blanks out of the past I very rarely rewatch movies unless it's for this podcast. So I like I I don't know why you would beat yourself up for that. <laughs> Even if you had all the free time in the world, which you don't because you in particular have a very demanding job. This is a movie that's fundamentally about failure. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's about yeah. the failure of a dream. It's about the failure of a human lifetime. It's about more or less in his own words, just like wasted opportunities and uh, a tragic empty life. The The movie literally opens with a man dying sad and lonely and alone and thinking about uh, everything that he's lost. This is, it's not, you know, a movie that uh, I would think that you would reach for in a, boy, I really want to immerse myself yeah. in that.
0: kind of way. But it is, I mean, it is a pleasure, though. I I feel like (laughs) this movie is, I think it's fun. I mean, mean, it is is so dynamic, and um, again, I go back to pacing, but it just—it just, it just kind of moves you along. There's nothing. There's not a wasted moment. There's things I, I actively look forward to every time I watch it, like the way the light beats down on on, on the on the the newsreel reporter as as he researches in that for, the forbidding library, and and uh, you know other other such moments, like some some of the editing choices, just the, the quick cuts. Um, I'll tell you one thing about seeing it in a theater. Did you ever see it in a theater, Tasha? No. Uh, That sort of shot cut to the cockatoo screeching (laughs) is is like it's like a jump scare in the theater. (laughs) It's so loud. It's I I think it's a jump scare. it it, it
3: definitely played big on this viewing as well. So, do you think that the idea behind that transition is it kind of a joke about Susan's voice because like she spent Mm -hmm. so much
2: time previous that like. Kind of screeching, I guess.
3: Yeah, I think that makes (laughs) sense. I thought that
2: Wells had openly said it was intended to kind of wake people up. Mm. Like, I started looking for it. I didn't remember exactly where it came. So I started looking for it around the halfway point of the the movie. And then because I I remembered it as like his attempt at a wake up call after act two. And I thought that he'd expressly said, you know, it's, eh, you've been with this story a little while. I needed to make sure everybody was awake. But it comes so close to the end. It almost registers, like, hey, the payoff's coming. Are you sure you're fully alert? Because I, like, I don't want you to miss this like, cool mm-hmm. surprise I've got for you at the end.
3: Yeah, it's maybe a, a more generous reading than he's <laughs> making fun of
0: <laughs>
3: how much she, she yells.
0: One other personal history detail. Um, I will say this: My first exposure to *This Is was as a kid. I was watching, I think it was the Today Show or one of the morning shows, and they had, they had some sort of special on un- great movies. And it had the full-on reveal of, of the Rosebud, uh, what, what Rosebud was. Uh, so I knew that well before seeing the film. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a very well-hidden secret these yeah, days. Yeah,
2: I mean, my first exposure to it was from Peanuts comics. Okay. Charles Charles Schultz was obsessed with uh, Rosebud. Was his sled as a punchline and a running gag. And I read books of Peanuts comics when I was, I don't know, four and five years old. They're they're very accessible for very young children. I knew that Rosebud was his sled before I had any idea what Rosebud Mm -hmm. was his sled referred to before I had any idea Mm. that Citizen Kane was even a movie. I had that drilled into my brain as a running gag punchline.
3: Yeah, like I don't think you could go into this movie at this point without knowing, maybe not specifically that Rosebud was his sled, but like it's not like it's a hard thing to figure out. Like there's the whole scene outside the cabin, and like you see it says Rosebud on the sled, and there's all this talk Can of Can you? I mean, I, 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 yeah, I'm pretty sure.
0: Because I, I look for that, and it seems to be at such an angle that you can't quite see it.
3: Maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering, or I'm just like. Is this an
2: Inception uh, top? moment <laughs> here? It, it might. It
3: it, on, it honestly might. But in the early going, the sled is just like highlighted. So there, mm-hmm. there's a talk of him like being hit with the sled, and then we see him <laughs> with the sled. And even if it doesn't say Rosebud on the sled, like if you had just like even heard the word sled associated with Citizen Kane, like at any point in your life, I think you would have probably put that together. But the thing is, like. It's it's like the the er spoiler you know Rosebud is is his sled but it's not really a spoiler I I don't think like this isn't a mystery it's presented as a mystery like our protagonist such as or you know the reporter is trying to solve this mystery but I don't think it's necessarily the mystery that the film itself is interested in solving the the mystery the film is interested in solving is the character of Charles Foster Kane.
0: Yeah, it's a cliché observation but it also tells you everything and nothing about Charles Foster right. Kane, you know. It's Yeah,
3: it, and sort of just going back to like what we appreciate about this film is And again, this is not a new observation. We were joking before we started. Like This is either going to be the easiest podcast we've done or the hardest, because it's like, what is there to say about Citizen Kane at this point? So no points for originality for any of us here. But this is a movie that to me is most impressive in terms of structure and character, which are two things that I tend to gravitate Toward, I've, I've joked before about how I take sort of an English major approach to, to to movies a lot of the time. Like I just like seeing how they fit together, and this is a movie that fits together really well and at the time in a very innovative way. Like the way that these vignettes are sort of doled out and the way they flow into each other and are sort of prompted by one character to the next is just so well managed and so well executed. And it's all in service of unpacking this character that you kind of realize over the course of watching the film that you will never know the full extent of this person the same way you will never know the full extent of any character in a movie. You appreciate that you are being told a specific story about this person. And in this case, just his... All consuming desire to be loved. And when you realize that, it's, I think the poignancy of that fact
0: is really just struck me this time. It is inspired by William Randolph Hearst, which is, was probably more on people's minds then than, than now. Mm-hmm. I, I knew very little about Hearst when I first saw this movie. I know, I know more now, not, not by any way, not in any way, an expert, but do you find that knowing more about Hearst enhances your, your viewing of, of the film?
2: I think in a way, seeing it as a a satire of a life and an indictment of a life coming from somebody with a personal stake in the whole story, coming from someone who had to then evade the consequences of attacking such a powerful man – I think makes it all a much more interesting backstory. But I kind of feel like Mankiewicz's ultimate revenge here is that this movie has really kind of outlasted an awful Mm -hmm. lot of Hearst's reputation and certainly (laughs) all of his power. You know, I I think a 100 years from now, people will still be watching this movie, and Hearst will barely even be a footnote in history. I don't know if he possibly could have predicted the degree to which this film would have a lasting place in history. Maybe – Maybe Wells' ego would have assumed that it would. But I mean, so many movies at the time were just kind of like one shot flashes in the pan and then they were gone. There was no significant preservation apart from, you know, like re-screenings, re-bookings of uh, a handful of movies. There was no way to predict that this long later, people would still be studying this movie the way that they do. So I think it's interesting, just as it's interesting to look into the real life story behind any, quote unquote, based on real life movie. But I certainly don't think it's necessary. I mean, this is ultimately a story about selfishness and greed and like the American dream and where it gets you and what the limits of it are, and why we're wrong about so many things that we think about wealth and power. It's a very universal story. And the fact that it was based in somebody's feelings about uh, Hearst, you know, they're interesting, they're relevant, I suppose, but they're not significant compared to the rest of the movie.
3: Yeah, it's interesting to think about it as a story about Hearst at this point in history because I think most viewers are going to be coming to it with more context stemming from the various Parodies of Citizen Kane. I'm thinking primarily of Charles Montgomery Burns on The Simpsons, who has had many a uh, <laughs> a Kane uh, storyline or or reference o- over the years. And like that's the context I took into my first viewing, and honestly, this viewing is as, as well. Like I still like I, I know the broad strokes of Hearst's life and kind of role in history and in our industry, but. You know, I, I certainly i like I've never sat down and read a biography of him, but I do have this context of this sort of like twice removed version of him via Mr. Burns and there's been other Kane parodies, right? Like I'm coming I'm coming up it, blank. It's sort, of,
0: it's sort of the biggest of them all, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the, the 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 Teddy Bear episode of uh sure. of Simpsons in particular, the Substance Particular.
2: Certainly the most uh, long running uh, kind of gag. Yeah, it's interesting to to contemplate the degree to which Citizen Kane has eclipsed the actual Hearst Mm -hmm. and then the degree to which (laughs) The Simpsons has certainly not eclipsed Kane in terms of erasing its cultural cachet, but like how many people who aren't cinephiles have any idea what the character is based on, let alone the sheer number of details and gags in The Simpsons that are specific references Mm -hmm. to Kane?
0: Yeah. So we should talk about the performances in this film, both Wells and and the supporting cast. I, I mean, I feel like, I would not say they get overshadowed, but you know it's, it tends to be like the third or fourth thing people talk about. Just like we're going to, it's going to be the third to fourth thing <laughs> yeah. we talk about uh, too. But uh, but I'll single out um, uh, I'll, I'll I'll single out a couple. And they're not huge prices, but I think I think Joseph Cotton. Is so good. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed. I was really focused on how good Everett Sloan is as Mr. Bernstein in this one, who has the best monologue in the film, the the, the one about seeing seeing the woman in the dress on on, on the boat, um, which is uh, such an amazing piece of writing, uh, so so well delivered. But who else sticks out for everybody else?
2: For me, it's Dorothy Cumming Gore. You know, I <laughs> I always have a problem with with Wells' performance in this because. I know on some level he's he's trying to emphasize how much Cain changed over the course of his life, but there are degrees to which it – just seems like he's playing entirely different characters at different points in his life like i'm not sure i fully see the continuity between the man in the vest echoing rooms who seems to have no attachment to life whatsoever and like the burning firebrand of young kane in his first day in the newsroom
0: i guess maybe my pushback would be is maybe the lack of connection is itself uh, and maybe it's a feature not a bug for this film it almost seems like a totally different person at that point
2: Maybe, but I feel like – I mean, if we're going to talk about flaws in uh, Citizen Kane, the the big flaw for me is that I don't entirely see the narrative connection between those two Mm. men. I don't entirely see the web of fate that connects – The man who was so in love with the truth that he wrote this manifesto and so in love with being engaged with every aspect of his life and the man who apparently never leaves his house and can barely manage to talk to his wife like we see the transitions that turned one version of that man into a different version over the course of the montage Mm -hmm. uh, with his first wife. But the startling jump between the man we see meet Susan Alexander and the man we see end up with Susan Alexander, I'm not entirely clear on why he so thoroughly gave up on life. Was it just the prospect of being mocked for what happened with her? Or was it Primarily the political thing, like, why did he so thoroughly choose to divorce himself from life?
0: There's the business failure, too. I mean, that's something we see a couple different times is him losing control of the business.
3: Yeah, I read it as stemming pretty exclusively from the political failure because, like, right before that, we see him on the cusp of winning this election. You know, the famous shot with the banner with his face and cane behind it. And, you know, this big crowd just like giving him the love he he so desires. You know, it's what he's always wanted. And then it's taken from him. And I think his subsequent relationship with Susan is sort of all in service of both justifying that loss and maybe recouping it in the form of a love that is arguably not there between husband and wife.
2: Yeah, I I didn't mean to head directly down that rabbit hole because my point was primarily just what I see more, more than anything in his performance is bigness, is mm-hmm. that Wells ego, that desire to play directly to the camera and like force his charisma out in front of him wherever he goes to make Kane as big as possible, whether it's young energetic Kane or old dour Kane, like he just has to be the center of attention. What I see in Dorothy Gore's performance though, is like an age and a growth of wisdom and bitterness but just very consistently the same character under it all the same slightly giddy slightly delighted by life slightly girly slightly shallow woman who's just learning more and more about the world and having it weigh her down more and more and i i just i see such a startling evocation of empathy such a, a startling humanity under every version of her from the version who like snickers at Kane on the street because he's muddy to the drunken, miserable version of her in the bar towards the beginning of the movie. I think it's just a really powerful and startling performance throughout.
3: And don't forget the version of her that is singing opera on a stage built Mm. for her in front of an audience that is mocking her. And you can just see that realization in her eyes. I think that scene, the opera scene is maybe the hardest to watch and and, in large part because of what coming Gord does with her face. It's not her singing there that was dubbed in, But just the sense of, you can just see in her eyes, like the realization that this is a farce, you know, and that she feels trapped, you know, she's, she's a character who's sort of defined by having other people lead her, you know, her mother is who wanted her to be a singer, not her. And then Cain, you know, continued to drag her in that direction. And that scene just puts so fine a point on what that realization would do to a person and then followed up by the aggressive clapping, (laughs) you know, and her like reaction to uh the rhythm of of how the applause rolls out is just I, I, it's it's really well done I think.
0: It's yeah, that's tough stuff and 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 the way it's so clearly not about doing something for her, mm-hmm. it's about selling a score for him. Yeah. You know, uh, I I think I think the ugliness of that that whole subplot, I've understood it more as I've gotten older.
2: Yeah. It's also just difficult with her because, I mean, I'm no judge of opera. Listening to her sing opera doesn't feel much different to me from listening to the characters in Amadeus sing <laughs> opera.
0: Really? It's not great, but it's not,
2: it's not terrible.
3: But it's, it's clearly,
0: uh, you know, they brought in, as you said, they brought in somebody. It's clearly the work of a good singer who's falling short and not someone yeah. who's completely incompetent.
2: Right. But it's not like listening to Gene Hagen try to do talkies in Singing in the Rain, you know? There's, It's not the kind of performance that makes uh, the people in the cheap seats go, oh my god, she's trying to sing opera, ha ha, in the way everybody else in the movie pretty much does. So all I really see is somebody working their heart out, which usually in cinema is code for underdog who's going to succeed.
0: Yeah, I guess – Opera is a little less central to culture now, but those who, you know, I, the first opera I ever went to, the, one of the singers flubbed a solo in a way that I couldn't pick up at all because I don't, you know, I don't have that refined of a ear palate or whatever for <laughs> opera. Uh, but you could hear the audience go, <gasps> you know. <that laughs> was, so, you know, I, I think imagine being – imagine having that – Sensitive of taste and being subjected to three plus hours of singing that for consistently fell short or worse, you know, I don't think you'd enjoy it too much.
2: I know it might lead me to shred my program into
0: a, <laughs> a
2: weird little fan that I could spin around.
3: Also, something that's been referenced in The Simpsons. Yeah, uh, what, what hasn't been
0: referenced in The Simpsons from this, uh, this film? Really?
3: You know, while we're talking about performances, I. I don't know if this is something I necessarily want to highlight as a performance, but it's more like a role I want to highlight, and that's of Jerry Thompson, the reporter who is chasing down the story mm. of Rosebud, because he's in a lot of this movie. You know, I kind of uh, slipped earlier and referred to him as the protagonist. He's not the protagonist, but he's the audience surrogate, certainly. And it's a very thankless role, and one like his face is almost... Never on screen. It's a lot of the back of his head. You know, it, we get a lot of his voice, but it's, you know, he's never a character that we are given any reason to like sympathize with because, like I said, he is, he is our audience surrogate. So I just, I think like for an actor, it would be an interesting role to take on something that is so central and yet has no real character to it if that makes sense
2: i also i i just feel like i've got to shout out to paul stewart's performance as raymond mm. oh that almost feels like a performance that belongs in a different film. He has such a small role in the movie, and he kind of feels like he's in a universal monster picture. He kind of feels like he should be saying, I, oh, I served to the master for many years. <laughs> and he's so close to it. He feels like he should have a much more complicated name than Raymond, one full of like V's and Z's. <laughs> he, just, he makes such a meal out of it. It's so delicious.
0: But I feel like there's a lot of horror movie atmosphere in that whole final stretch too it's a haunted house i mean i think i think it fits in
3: well and in the opening shots of the film which i'm sorry to kind of like take us on a different track real quick but i really want to acknowledge like the opening shot of xanadu and the one dissolve after another you know the the technique for which we named an entire website Mm. and it never like i think i knew you know that the film opened that way, but watching it this time and seeing how it was executed with just these matte paintings, just like you keep like dissolving a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer. And it's like you're creeping up to Xanadu. You're, you're going through the gates and it's just, it's very effectively done in in a very simple, way, you know, this very old fashioned technique, and a very budget friendly technique, it should be said, like this was not a super expensive film by the standards of the day, but it certainly looks like it. And I think like right from the get go, that opening shot of Xanadu, opening shots of Xanadu kind of uh, underscores that and certainly makes it look like this haunted house that we see later in the film in more detail.
2: I had completely forgotten about that opening. I remember the movie opening with the snow globe and uh, Rosebud Mm -hmm. and sitting there watching that and like listening to the heavy horror movie music and seeing the house off in the distance, like basically looking like the Bates house from Mm -hmm. Psycho and just one shot after another of the dilapidated golf course and the dilapidated zoo and the dilapidated pleasure boat area. I I literally said out loud, Orson Welles, you cheeky bastard! During that opening, because <laughs> as it it just went on and on and on, and I'm like, I don't remember any of this, and it's it's so well staged as an introduction to ridiculous luxury, ridiculous decadence, fallen into disrepair. It's, it tells you so much about the people who lived there before you ever see any of them.
0: And it owes a debt for as much as Kane is the origin of so much. It owes a debt. And I, I'm not the one first one person points this out, but it was a debt to Rebecca, which was released the year before, mm. right down to the the monogrammed gate.
3: Right, I knew that was familiar. I just assumed it was familiar from from Kane, but no, it was from, yeah. from another movie that we've covered on this podcast. But also to to stay on that uh, scene for for just a moment, I mean, obviously it you know, we get the famous him him dying in Rosebud and the the breaking snow globe. But then it transitions into this big newsreel, kind of extended newsreel segment. It goes on for much longer than I recall. And it kind of feels like an interesting counterpoint to that very just mood the moody evocativeness of this introduction to Xanadu and to the last moments of of Kane. And then to immediately transition into this like very differently paced very expository sequence that lays out or we think lays out everything we need to know. So like the juxtaposition of those two very different introductions to Charles Foster Kane, I think kind of sets the stage for a movie that seeks to fill in kind of the middle ground between that like evocativeness and, you know,
2: the narrative of what actually happened in this man's life. Yeah, very much the contrast between the public view of him and the private Mm -hmm. view of him. Of course, that
0: too, yeah. Tasha, I think about your interview with uh, Danny Boyle sometimes about he, where he likened his films to mixtapes, where you have like, <laughs> you know this bit and then you have to change the pace a little and then you kind of have to have a little surprise to wake people up, kind of like what we talked about with the with the cockatoo. Uh, I feel like this is a good model to point to for that sort of thing, where mm-hmm. you each have these these, these sequences that kind of have a little world of their own, and, and and that's part of it. And it does end it does end as a horror movie. I mean, that's part of the tragedy of his life is uh, laid out in these really expressionistic. Uh, terms.
2: But also a, a sequence that I can't help but wonder I, – I didn't look into this at all, but has Spielberg ever acknowledged was the closing shot of Raiders of the Lost Ark inspired mm-hmm. by that? I don't think he has to. <laughs> I think it's pretty obviously inspired by that. <laughs> I, I mean, it certainly looks like it. It. I, I laughed watching it. It was just so visually familiar to me. I mean, it's an iconic Shot that I didn't remember having seen before in Kane, but I had the exact same reaction, Tasha. Like that room just
3: filled with all of this stuff. And, you know, it's. Obviously, it ends in the fire and the revelation of, of Rosebud, but to me, that shot leading to it, it was even more sort of gasp-worthy, you know? Just like a person's life reduced to all of these signifiers that are ultimately clutter and mean nothing. It's quite a, an image to leave us with. And then another yep. interesting counterpoint to that opening image, which is the exterior of that
2: space yeah, we've talked about this a bit like you're a media crier and an art crier and i'm very much not but one of the only pieces of artwork uh, not not a film but like an actual artwork that's ever moved me to that degree is this piece called i believe it's called memory by anish kapoor that is literally just a an almost submarine sized giant rusty metal ball that you can look into from different directions. When I saw it, I believe it was at the Guggenheim. I looked into this thing and there's just, you know, a certain amount of light comes in through the portals. And the rest of that space is just this vast shadowy darkness. And you can immediately see the metaphor. You know, there's so much in that space that is just completely lost that you have. It's there. You know, it's there. You can feel it's there. It's nothing that you can access. And, looking in on this thing and and seeing sort of how little of the light penetrated this space that's meant to represent the inside of Mm -hmm. a mind, I just started crying Mm -hmm. standing in a museum, which is just not something that's ever happened to me before. And I get that same feeling looking at the ever-expanding shots of that room full of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like every single thing in this space means something to one person. Every single object here in some way ties to a memory he had, a moment that he had. And it might be like his mother's old stove that's worth two bucks, something incredibly significant and important. It might be something like rosebud that would mean nothing to anybody else, but is tied to a huge sense of self. Or it might be something that he saw in passing, like a statue and threw down $25,000 for. Nobody but him knows what it is this entire space of detritus has been left behind as a marker of one man's life. And it's all lost information. It's all become meaningless. And if there's a more a trenchant metaphor in cinema. I, I'm honestly hard pressed to find it. It's just so effective and so beautiful and so painful and so tragic all at once. It's also just visually remarkable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty seamless in terms of how much of that is physically real and how much of it isn't, which makes the intimidating scope of it even more amazing.
0: Yeah, I have no idea how that's put together. There's a lot. There's there's quite a bit in this movie. I don't actually don't know how it was done.
3: Yeah it's it's weird like for a film that is so discussed and you know we we've joked about like not having anything new to say about it like I don't know about you guys I did not do a whole lot of research for this one like a lot of research into how it was made because mm-hmm. it feels like at this point it's a little moot and that's funny to say given the film that we we're about to discuss in the second half of of this podcast but At this point, and, you know, given its stature in film, it feels better to just sort of experience it as the object it is and not necessarily study what went into it, at least this time around. That's how I felt.
0: I'll tell you one trick uh, one, <laughs> one that always strikes me and it is so, you know, now kind of invisible because we don't even think about this sort of thing. And again, as with everything, it's been much discussed, but how there had been shots of ceilings in movies before, mm. but not that many and not that often because that's where you put the microphones. Right. And the trick here is that he stretched uh, fabric across what looks like, you know, ceiling or drywall is actually fabric through which sound could could travel. I mean, just like, it's uh, like sort of like lo-fi Hacks that were so, mm-hmm. you know, made such a big difference uh, in it. Uh, and, and like, I don't know that if you saw this film in 1941, you'd be gasping because you'd never seen a ceiling before. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> it, it does it does change the way you consider the space and it does give you a different angle on things. Same with the deep, well, deep, that's, deep focus that's that we, literally a different yeah. angle on
2: things. Because, I mean, the the reason the ceilings were necessary was because he was making a point of shooting Kane from below. Mm-hmm. So you're always looking up at this towering man. And shooting other characters like Susan Alexander from above, so you're always looking down on them. Leading to that incredible shot where he tells her, your singing will continue. And he just moves over her and looms over her so she disappears into darkness. <laughs> the symbolism there may be a little heavy, you know, if we're yelling at Ice Storm uh, last time around and The Nest for yeah. having heavy-handed symbol- symbolism. I'm not sure we can entirely let Kane off the hook on that one, but it's still, oof, what I mean, you know, what a shot. But if your cameras are constantly looking up at the characters that you want to tower over you and there's no ceiling there, it's going to be pretty obvious. Uh, talking about
3: symbolism, and I this is another thing that I'm sure we'll get into in part two, but uh, may I just throw out the interplay of light and dark. Oh my gosh. Uh, the the way shadows and light are used. Uh, I mean, this is a very overtly sort of expressionistic, German expressionistic film. Mm-hmm. And the way Kane in particular moves in and out of shadow is... Very purposeful to the point that if you were feeling ungenerous, you could say it is you know on the nose or obvious or whatever. But (laughs) it's Citizen Kane. Like, shut up. Nothing. (laughs) Like it's all (laughs) obvious and none of it is. You know, it's obvious because Citizen Kane did it.
0: Well, and also you would get film noir without this, but I don't think you get some of the lighting conventions that became so central to, to to film noir without it.
2: It's you know, probably very true. Before we move on into what I think is the obvious next topic coming directly from that, I do want to say, Genevieve, I don't know that I want the tricks of the movie spoiled for me exactly, but it Wells being involved, if you like look into the backstory of the movie at all, there are a million crazy and or entertaining stories oh, yeah. about all of his you know schemes and deceptions and uh, things that he insisted on and things that he insisted on not. And it's fun, reading reading. But like, I don't know how much I want to know about the tricks behind how the film was made. I think my favorite story that I ran across, like looking into the backstory of the film was that the sequence with the showgirls at the, the newspaper celebration party? He originally scripted that to be at, uh, set at a brothel with prostitutes, and the <laughs> censors threw it out. And he, he had apparently put that in deliberately so they would have something to throw out, <laughs> so they would overlook other things, which is a long time uh, strategy that people still use with the MPAA. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of stuff like that that involved manipulating the studio in order to get his own way, like lying about the specific things that were going on and what he needed. And I imagine it's just one of those, like, the more you look into it, the more entertaining stories there are.
3: Oh, oh sure. I don't deny that for a moment. And I don't want to suggest that, like, it's better to not know things about Citizen Kane, but I just think like with a film this storied and when there is so much about it and it has influenced so much, it's just like, I feel like that can all kind of become noise that maybe leads to that feeling that we were talking about at the beginning this sort of wall around the film, you know, and it was nice to sort of allow myself to just experience the film divorced from all that this time around. So well, sure. that's all I it's mean. It's the,
2: the closest we can get to uh, watching a movie just to watch a movie instead of it right. being three levels of homework. <laughs> well, I veered us back towards that uh, mostly because I really wanted to get the brothel story out, mm-hmm. but it kind of seemed like we were heading in the direction of uh, one of Keith's specific questions here, which was kind of the, uh, the pre Kane versus post Kane look at mm. filmmaking.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, the more you think of Kane changing everything and the more examples that you can find of, of examples of things it does that preceded Kane, too. And I, I think part of it is I think Kane is, you know, there's a lot of invention in it, but also a lot of sort of synthesis, a lot of like ideas that were floating around kind of all found their way into Wells's process here. But is it does it still make sense to, th- to talk pre Kane, post Kane in terms of, uh, movie history?
2: I mean, in terms of a lot of little things, like the ceiling trick, or like, not foregrounding the actor credits at the beginning of the film, moving them to the end of the film, which was apparently a big innovation for this movie. I think there are a lot of things like that that you can point to. But one of the big, just broad general things here is he trusted the audience to keep up with a story that an awful lot of people looked at this script and said, nobody's going to be able to make sense of this. Mm-hmm. Like you you can't ask people to keep up with a, a narrative this complicated. You can't ask them to keep up with a bunch of different characters sprawled off on like different time periods, both in their lives and in the story itself. Like you can't expect people to piece all this together and i don't know if you you guys know
0: this but there were not youtube explainers at this point to to piece this (laughs) stuff together
2: isn't that what newsreels were (laughs) how how are people supposed to figure out what what the ending of the movie was revealed (laughs) but yeah i like it something like this comes along and suddenly you have everybody saying uh what you think my story is complicated have you seen Kane?" Mm. Uh, people were able to follow that I think
3: the trouble with thinking of sort of a pre and post Cain dividing line, at least today, is that the vast majority of audiences have very little to no context of what came before Cain and what was sort of being upended here. And, and certainly there are some films, you know, from before 1941 that are still accessible today and, and important enough that people might seek them out. But you know, just in terms of where this fell in the sound era, like the beginning of the sound era, and the changes like Tasha is talking about in terms of narrative and uh, audience expectation, like, it almost feels at this point that Kane is a starting point, <laughs> because audiences don't just have that context for what came before. They can certainly find it if they are so inclined. But given how many people I've heard in the last couple weeks say, I've never seen Citizen Kane before, I, I don't have a whole lot of faith <laughs> that, mm. you know, people are are actively seeking out the films that it was revolutionizing.
0: And I think also, there is sort of this fault, there's a lot of false divide, because uh, there's a false divide in some ways, because it's not like there were not extremely you know, stylistically minded directors working pre Kane and doing innovative work right. and in some ways it's you know kind of returning some of the techniques of silent film to the sound era versus in inventing them uh, whole cloth I mean there were, you know there was you know sound the great innovation of sound brought sound but it also kind of hampered what you could do with image because you were mm-hmm. so tied to you know making the sound audible so you know it's, it's things like that that, that it makes it a, a fine dividing line but also maybe not the definitive uh, divide, dividing line between uh, before and after I mean I think it's almost as useful to talk about before and after. Or French new way but even there you know there's not like there's not like it's it's not a rubicon you know that it's it's more mm-hmm. a transitional moment versus a, a dividing line so any final thoughts before we never talk about citizen kane ever again <laughs>
2: I think the most important thing to note here, and in any discussion, really, of Citizen Kane, is that in the viral internet video, Shia LaBeouf, the actual cannibal Shia LaBeouf song, at the very end of it, they cut to the audience and Shia LaBeouf is sitting there and he the the light's falling across his face in a certain way and he slowly starts applauding and then he he applauds more quickly and then he stands up and then he seems to look around himself self-consciously and sit back down i had no idea that that thing that i have watched over and over and over was a like a direct beat for beat shot for shot recreation of something in citizen kane
3: mm. you mean the clapping and- yeah, the clapping. Oh, I feel like we got that gift sent to us so much in the dissolved days, like on Twitter and stuff, like whenever we did something
2: that people like, they would send
3: us that gift. So that was always my context for it.
2: <laughs> yeah, although the clip, the gift clip generally is shorter and doesn't extend to right. the, the point sure. where he realizes he's alone in a theater and looks around uncomfortably and sits back down. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one of the reasons I didn't realize to what degree it was a rip. But, you know, it's like reading Aesop's fables or reading Bible stories. It's, it's one of those things that you just don't realize how thoroughly it's suffused into the culture and how many referent points there are until you, you sit down with it and suddenly all of these things fall into place that you, you realize you'd been missing. And uh, suddenly realizing that that gag is a directly stolen gag, is, a, is an homage, uh, was one of the more fun moments for me from revisiting this film.
0: So normally at this point, I'd throw the feedback. We're going to shake things up a little bit uh, and have uh, an extra special treat from you from our absent co-host, Scott Tobias, after the break. But before I do that, I do want to say that we do love your feedback and and we'd love to get some more than we've been getting, actually. The pace has slowed a little bit. We love reading your letters. So please, we're asking you. Please write to us. So in other words, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nixpictureshow.net. And we'll be right back after the break.
3: again, listeners. uh, I am Genevieve back here with Scott Tobias who uh, was not on the discussion of Citizen Kane you just heard, but through the magic of editing, is joining me to give you some Bespoke Scott Tobias content specifically for this little section of the podcast. And this is sort of carrying on a, a Scott Tobias tradition, uh, albeit in a, a new format. So, uh, Scott, what have you brought us?
1: Okay. So, I, uh, you know, this started at the, start of the AV Club and then continued through the dissolved, even on to Letterboxd as I've been freelancing. Um, is my, my yearly Movies to See checklist, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it would just kind of collect exactly what, you know, the, the, the movies that you would want to see ideally to have uh, marked yourself as a, as a good gold star <laughs> cinephile every year.
3: This is not not necessarily the best. It's just like if you want to look back on 2020 and have an idea of what film was like that year, these are the films that you should have.
1: See? Yeah, I mean, it, it, hopefully the best, some of the best ones are going to be included of in course. this, certainly. And I used to have, and one thing I did have when we used to publish this is is um, a category called Essential. And th- those are the ones I feel like everybody should prioritize, you know, even above uh, ones that I had in other categories. Uh, we don't have that necessarily here, though. I'm going to try to recreate it a a little bit (laughs) if I can. (laughs) Uh, uh, But this is just going to be a lot of titles, I think. And and one thing that we've done is we've covered a lot of films on The Next Picture Show that I think would be on a checklist. So maybe that would be, maybe we should start with those.
3: And I think uh, before we go any farther, uh, Scott, we should know that you are going to, like you said, mostly be rattling off uh, titles here, maybe with a, a little extra info as, as needed. But yeah. uh, you will also be posting this on your letterbox.
1: I will. I usually do uh, the movies to see checklist. At the beginning, either the end of a year or right at the beginning of the next, um, maybe I'll try a little earlier this year, but I, I kind of want to get a sense of what some of these late coming movies are going to be like before I make it official. I mean, obviously, I've heard a lot of good buzz about movies that are coming soon. I think December is looking really promising. Um but uh, so it might I mean I don't know if I'll have it up yet so this is more of a okay. preview well,
3: well how about this I will uh ensure that the the list that you are reading off tonight uh, will also appear in our patreon newsletter uh the which will come out the Friday after you hear this so okay. uh, if you are a patreon subscriber you, get the, uh, you, you can, get the raw list you can get the text version otherwise uh you know whip out a pen and paper and follow along
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know what I might I might also just add where some of these things are playing, because a lot of these sure. are, are Streaming in specific places.
3: All right. What do you got for us?
1: So, okay. So, let's start with things that we've actually talked about on the show. First is Invisible Man, which is one of your last. Uh, movies before we shut it all down. <laughs> uh, uh, so I saw that in quarantine. Uh The assistant, which is which is the 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 Weinstein like You know what, what would it be like to have worked with for, for a Weinstein like monster? One of my favorite films of the year.
3: One of Tasha's most disliked films of the year. I know, <laughs> which made for I know. an interesting discussion. I know,
1: <laughs> I know. I know. I feel. I feel good about. But that's nothing. Nothing. I feel. I feel, I feel good about. <laughs> I feel good about where I stand on that film. Um, uh, Five Bloods is the is the spite is one of two. Spike Lee films on the list. Five Bloods yeah. is on Netflix. The other Spike Lee is David Burns' American Utopia, which I think all of us liked a little bit more, even. Yeah. Um, and that's on HBO Max. Uh, uh, Hamilton uh, you know Hamilton is Hamilton I don't know what it was much of a film but it but it is a significant work of art uh, Palm Springs is a, a Hulu film that that uh, many of us enjoyed uh, first cow I think is a movie you're gonna see on a uh, really high on a lot of top 10 lists including including mine we covered that on the podcast uh, boy state is a documentary that's on Apple plus if you happen to have that mm-hmm. uh, uh, really really lively I'm thinking of ending things and Dick Johnson is dead which is currently my favorite film of the year both of those are On Netflix, Um, Shirley, which is the 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 Shirley Jackson. Uh, biopic-ish thing with Elizabeth Moss. Uh, that's quite good. Uh, Kajillionaire, the new Miranda July. We talked on the show about on the show. Uh, the Nest uh, came up, up recently. It was a recent show of ours, and that's um, currently on VOD. And Mank. I don't know what you guys end up thinking of Mank on the show. Uh, <laughs> uh,
3: you'll have to tune in next week and find
1: I out. Know. Oh, it kills me! It kills me! <laughs> I wasn't on that show. So those are some of the ones that we featured on the show. Um, Should note
3: that in addition to two Spike Lee's, also two Elizabeth Moss starring uh, yeah. films on. on on there so those are two two next picture show favorites for 2020 so, so
1: of that list of things we've actually done on the show where what would you be stumping for uh genevieve
3: uh i definitely think dick johnson is dead would be high on my list um boy state all the and american utopia all the sort of like non-fiction uh entries on this list i think mm-hmm. are, are super strong there you know, I I didn't see The Invisible Man or Shirley, so I'm I, I guess I'm behind on my Elizabeth Moss viewing. Uh, yeah, for Yeah, she's year,
1: incredible so. in, the, in both of those movies. Wh- wh- however, whatever you think of them, I think he, I, I'm trying to think about how freaked out you'd be by The Invisible Man. I think think fairly uh, significantly freaked out.
3: Yeah, yeah, but you don't know lately it's, it's, these it's, days, it's, these days. Yeah. You know, it's not one when, when I'm I'm rushing uh, to, <laughs> to fill. I, I also uh, just t- to note, uh, even though uh, this. Uh, is as featured on the next picture. show. I should note that Hamilton was a Patreon bonus episode. So uh, <sighs> if you right. are not a subscriber and are furiously looking for that in your feed, that is where it is. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's an
1: enticement. It's, a, it's kind of an inadvertent <laughs> enticement for yeah. the uh, for the Patreon. So the, the next category I have here is just what I feel are essential... Uh, viewings that, that that we haven't covered on the show. Okay. And I think the most essential of all of these is Steve McQueen's Small Axe mm-hmm. series that's currently uh, unfolding on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, you know, Mangrove, Lover's Rock, uh, red, white, and blue, education, and uh, Alex Whittle, uh, or Alex Weedle, I should say. Uh, I've seen all five. Uh, I that was my a big Thanksgiving binge. Um, I, I love I, Lovers Rock is to me the kind of the, the 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 pinnacle of of the five. But they all it's a it's kind of a sum is greater. Wait then the parts right <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay that's how it works well um, so then
3: so then this raises the natural question yes. of film versus tv it's fair. <laughs> i mean no, they're, I think, they're, they're, they're feature I, length but you're just talking they're about barely, how uh,
1: some of them uh, are barely feature length but but uh <laughs> I, i'm gonna claim this i'm claiming this for film okay <laughs> it I'll feels like a it. film i mean in mangrove is like over two hours long um and it, it sort and
3: McQueen of mcqueen is definitely thinking of it that way so if nothing else yeah. you can fall back on authorial intent yeah there.
1: yeah definitely um so uh, you know uh, maybe maybe we we Cover find some way to, to bring that those onto the show because they're pretty significant. Uh, never we never we did not do never rarely sometimes always on the show the Eliza Hitman film about uh, a young woman seeking an abortion and uh, that's that's a really remarkable movie. Uh, Baccarat is a film that Keith and I did a bonus episode on um, back in the day to kind of highlight the whole notion of virtual cinema, but uh, it's kind of like a instant cult classic. Uh, Beanpole is a really grim uh, film. I think we also did, we do that uh, bonus episode on so. that too. No, I don't maybe, I maybe I just so. brought it. Maybe I just yeah. brought it up as a your next picture show. A Russian film, um, very yes. very strong. Uh, I loved Collective, another doc, documentary um, about Romania about about issues you know, corruption within uh, the Romanian government and healthcare system. Very powerful. Uh, Bloody Nose Empty Pockets, which is sort of a fiction, nonfiction hybrid from uh, the Ross Brothers. Uh, mm-hmm. Love that. Uh, and The Vast of Night, which is kind of one of the most exciting um, debut features, kind of a shoestring science fiction movie in the sort of Twilight Zone mode. Uh, that, that is on Amazon Prime.
3: Yeah, we try. I remember trying to find a pairing for Vast of Night, and it just kept coming back to like, well... Twilight Zone, but that's not a classic <laughs> film. No, so.
1: It really isn't. <laughs> well, yeah, certainly not. Certainly not like Twilight Zone, the movie would not no, have been a good yeah. choice. <laughs> but yeah, I, and I don't think I don't think our, our readers would have necessarily tolerated us. <laughs> you know, digging up a couple of old episodes of the twilight zone that we like but yeah it's, it's our a, show
3: we can do what we want but in this case we didn't
1: <laughs> it is pretty good it's pretty good um mm-hmm. there there are some things that are coming up that that you want to keep an eye out in december december is looking pretty good i just want to mention a few of those nomadland highly highly acclaimed uh film from chloe Zhao who did the rider mm-hmm. uh and it stars francis mcdormand that's coming up soon uh soul which i've seen this is this is this will be on disney plus uh very high end, uh, Pixar film in my opinion. Uh, we're about to do a podcast on Wolf Walkers, uh, which I again really liked. Um, there's a film, there's a documentary called The Truffle Hunters coming up that pe- people have a lot of affection for. Uh, One Night in Miami, uh, which is the debut feature of Virginia King. Mm-hmm. Am I right oh, about yeah. that? Yeah, uh, and uh, Promising Young Woman, which is kind of a Sundance uh, favorite, and Tenant, which no, I have—I don't think any of us have seen because it was in theaters, <laughs> and we we have yeah. been avoiding theaters. My assumption is that it's probably worth seeing because it's Christopher Nolan, but I have not seen it because uh, it was in a movie theater. You—you you uh, haven't
3: uh, spoiled yourself on the internet with uh, you have? How much have you read about Tenant?
1: Not, uh, not much. I, I, I the title is a is like a palindrome. That <laughs> I, I, I spoiled my I've spoiled myself on that. <laughs> All right, well, um, yeah. So so let me and now let me just mention a bunch of random other things that you can find in different places. Uh, the Old Guard. Uh, this is the Gina Prince Prince Breithwood movie. We did a little, we did a little bonus pod on yeah we discussed her, her work uh,
3: yeah that, that was a good, uh, that was a good bonus episode it I, was. I, I, yeah and a good movie. Yeah. I, I enjoyed Old Guard yeah. very much, even though it had so much of your beloved violence. Uh, it, uh, it, I It, it, I it do went, like it went down violence.
1: smooth. <laughs> 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 yes, and, and that's sitting there on Netflix for you. Uh, on the Rocks is the new Sofia Coppola, which has been warehoused <laughs> on Apple TV <laughs> or Apple Plus, um, we have a I,
3: lot of Apple TV Plus on this list. Actually, like you know, they they it, they I don't think it's, like... it's fair to consider it the whipping What's boy it? of the streaming no, services. I know.
1: It, it, well, the thing is, it's good. They just don't. It's just not populated by yeah. by a lot, you know. So you get some good movies. You get Ted Lasso, which is a really fun mm-hmm. series, and and uh, Dickinson, which it's I hear is a fun series. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, you, maybe I think it's maybe I would get a subscription for a month or two. Kind <laughs> <laughs> F- find your way through some of these Get, wait until Wolf Wolfwalkers gets on there and yeah. check it out on the rocks I don't know I, I, you know I think it's it's a nice movie and uh, you know it's Sofia Culpa you gotta see it sure. uh, time is a really devastating documentary that's on Amazon Prime really worth seeking out uh, The Painter and the Thief, another really interesting documentary I, j- I just saw Martin Eden uh, last night, it's a, a, a very complicated Italian film that, that many people, not not necessarily myself, but uh, but like uh, Bilga uh, from your uh, fine outlet, he mm-hmm. it's his favorite movie of the year, uh, so yeah. it's probably worth mentioning uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom I guess should go towards in future it has not come yeah. out yet, but, but Chadwick Bozeman uh, his performance uh, seems to be getting quite a bit of attention. Uh, Black is King if you're if you uh, like the Beyonce uh, cinema. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I really I, I think Athlete A I think is the best of the two movies that I've seen about the women's gymnastics program uh, that's on uh, Netflix because I think it kinda gives you a context not just for for the abuse that happened but just but for the overall, toxicity and, and, and problems within uh, the program you know beyond this one man um so quite good uh drives driveways is a is a movie that with um featuring the, the late brian dennehy uh, that a lot of people uh, really love uh, very if you like kind of like very nice low-key indie films it's worth checking out i'm not as huge a fan of it as others but uh others love it uh, sound of metal we haven't covered on the show but um i like it a lot and it's uh, another really great riz Ahmed performance that's on Amazon Prime. Uh, she Dies Tomorrow uh, is the is the uh, very unusual abstract horrorish film by Amy um, uh Trial of Chicago Seven is is Aaron Sorkin. It's very sorkin It's on it's on <laughs> Netflix. I think I'd be it'd be interesting to double feature with uh, Mangrove. Very very similar I, kind of. I,
3: I think you will be hearing more about uh, a couple of these titles uh, in, next week on uh, your next picture show.
1: Okay, so. <laughs> interesting, and then and then and then there's Emma, uh, featuring the the bewitching, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Annie Taylor Joy, um, who uh, who was. Is- one of my favorite TV shows this year. Um, yeah, the, I was going to say, uh, do you want to add? The, do
3: want to add the Queen's Gambit? Is just a, a cla- really long I movie. Claim
1: <laughs> I can't claim it for cinema. You know, I, you know, I'd like to, but I can't claim it. Um, uh, I, sh- so th- I
3: should note. Uh, I think you you started uh, with uh, one of the last films seen in, in theaters, uh, yes. and uh, ending with Emma, which was the last film I saw in a theater oh, this oh, this year.
1: That's too bad. So. Yeah, I, th- I think of the list of the movies on this list. Uh, I think Dick Johnson is dead would have been the last. I, I, like seeing that movie and having a conversation with with kirsten johnston that happened like the week before things went haywire i saw that true false went home and then tom hanks got sick <laughs> things yeah. went the nba stopped and that was the that was the end of movies for me um so uh, i have uh it's a it was a bittersweet moment
3: well it's been an unusual year in film but you know i, I guess the, a silver lining is that Pretty much all of these, obviously, uh, with the exception of the coming soon titles, are pretty easily accessible. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those listening along and who took diligent notes can uh, start catching up.
1: Yes, yeah. we'll we'll throw we'll we'll put this, I guess, in the show notes. Right, the show notes. Did you say? Uh, or I'll, patron, patron the Patreon newsletter. Yeah, yes, it's okay, a little too uh, long Patreon for the newsletter. show notes, but it we will is, put in
3: the Patreon newsletter. Yes. Of
1: course, it is too long, and, and, and yeah, and, and I'll uh, maybe I'll, I'll um, tip off uh, listeners to when I actually uh, put together the, the checklist and put it up on Letterbox so they can they can follow along. And, and I'll just, it actually works like a checklist. So once you see okay. it, you know there you'll get the percentage of things you've seen. Um, okay. So I, you know, I, and I'd like to just defend the year. I think there's pl- plenty mm-hmm. of really great movies that have come out this year um you know and and it'll be kind of a good chance to emphasize all these great movies that come out that are not from hollywood or that you know there's been so many good documentaries especially but uh anyway that's all i got all right
3: all right well thanks for uh joining us across time and space uh scott and uh so sorry you won't be with us to discuss mank next week but you'll be back after that
0: and we will talk soon okay cool That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll return to Kane territory by way of David Fincher's mank. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then... Don't toss any sleds on the fire without reading them first.
2: There
1: is a man, a certain man, and for the poor
2: you may be sure that he'll do all he can. Who is this one whose favorite son, just by his action, has the traction magnets on the run? Who likes to smoke, enjoys a joke, and wouldn't get a bit upset if he were really broke? With wealth and fame,
3: he's still the same. I bet you five you're not alive if you don't know his name.